The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty. Welcome to Deep Dive with the Institute for Justice. I'm Melanie Hildreth. Over the past few decades, even as the number of involuntary encounters between citizens and law enforcement has soared, protections against abuse for citizens have shrunk. I'm here with IJ Senior Attorney Bob McNamara and IJ Attorney Keith Neely to talk about one of the more controversial practices that prompts these encounters, stop and frisk policies. Bob, let's start by talking about where stop and frisk came from. Can you explain what a Terry stop is? Sure. So as a matter of federal constitutional law, when people talk about stop and frisk, they mean uh, a Terry stop. And they're referring to a case, a U.S. Supreme Court case from the 1960s uh, called Terry v. Ohio, in which the Supreme Court uh, adopted this rule that said, well, ordinarily, if the government wants to arrest someone, they need probable cause to think they committed a crime. We're going to create this, this kind of middle ground where the government may not have enough evidence to say that someone committed a crime, but they have they have more than nothing. They have a reasonable, articulable suspicion that this person is fishy somehow. And that gives them the right to engage in what the court called a minimally intrusive stop. Uh, they, the government can stop someone, can order them to stop, and can frisk them, can search them to see if they have any weapons that might make them a threat to an officer. And that's what's known in the law as a Terry stop, and that's the case that undergirds everything we're talking about when we talk about kind of modern stop and frisk practices. So what exactly happened in the Terry case? And um, does the fact that, and how do you think the circumstances of that case actually influenced the way that the court ruled in it? Sure. So the the circumstances from which Terry arose are, as with a lot of Supreme Court cases, uh, a criminal prosecution and a, a motion to suppress evidence. Uh, and Terry came about actually not because of a change in policing practices. It's not like the, the government invented the idea of stopping and frisking people. And then Terry was decided stop and frisk long predates the 1960s. Uh, Terry comes about because it's only a couple years after the U.S. Supreme Court uh, starts to hold that state courts have to suppress evidence that was collected in violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment applies to the states, and states have to exclude evidence that's collected in violation of the Fourth Amendment, which raises for the first time what the Fourth Amendment is going to say about this widespread practice of, of stop and frisk. Um, and so kind of in the Terry court's defense, uh, what, what they were looking at was a widespread practice, and there were states that had basically signed off on stop and frisk for any reason or for no reason. It was just a, a thing the police could do when they saw someone on the street. And I think what the Supreme Court thought it was doing in Terry was coming up with a middle ground, uh, where the, the defendant in Terry, uh, he and his friends had been kind of hanging out outside this building, clearly, according to the police testimony, sort of casing the joint, looking like they were going to pull off some kind of robbery. Officer stops them, frisks them, finds, finds a gun, uh, he's criminally charged. And the Supreme Court, faced with the question of what is the officer supposed to do in that moment, um, tries to come up with this middle ground. And they say, look, uh, this is not an arrest. Uh, we're, we're not going to suppress the gun for unlawful arrest. Uh, because when the officer stopped him, that was a minimally intrusive stop. And we want to be super clear what we're saying. One, we're not saying you can stop anyone for any reason. You have to have this uh, reasonable, articulable suspicion. And we're not saying you can search anyone all the time. You have to have an actual...
actual suspicion of a crime, and you have to be engaged in this sort of minimally intrusive stop. Uh, and reading the Terry opinion itself, you really get the sense that the, the court is trying to strike this balance between what it sees as important for policing and what it sees as important for privacy, and it kind of reaches out and, and creates this brand new thing. And as frequently happens when you create a brand new thing, uh, the thing has grown beyond anything uh, conceived of by the Terry court, and certainly beyond anything that, that had ever been imagined in the common law before Terry came down. I want to talk about that, but before we get there, one of the, the questions that came to me as I was looking at the sort of the story of, of the Terry case is, you know, for an ordinary person, for somebody who's not a law enforcement officer, not an attorney, um, that distinction between probable cause and something less than probable cause. So if you have these people who look like they're casing a building, being being super shady, how is that, like, why is that not probable cause? Or did the court talk about that and say, oh, well, in this case, why not just go ahead and say that that was enough to do a proper Fourth Amendment stop? Why did they have to create this middle ground? Well, sure, because looking at a building the wrong way, just like looking at me the wrong way, might see, might be suspicious, it might be shady, but it's not a crime. Uh, the, the officer doesn't have probable cause to think that these people have committed any crime because they haven't. They're, they're standing on the sidewalk, they're looking at the building funny, they're shifting from foot to foot, all of which is perfectly legal. Uh, and he's not charged actually with anything related to, to his looking at the building. He's charged with having the firearm on his person once he's frisked. So probable cause means we have an actual suspicion that you have done something wrong. And it's sort of the, the animating idea behind the entire Fourth Amendment. When the, when the Fourth Amendment was adopted, it was adopted against this background of general searches and writs of assistance that British authorities were using to sort of run pell-mell through the, the warehouses and the storerooms of, of American colonists who, who didn't like the idea that the government could just show up and go through their stuff uh, and look through things and poke around. And in, in the words of uh, one anti-federalist writer, the, the concern was that government officials would search women's petticoats. Uh, and we, we don't have petticoats anymore, but I think we all have the, the same The instinct is there, for sure. Exactly, <laughs> just the intuitive sense that, you know, if I'm going about my business, you shouldn't be able to stop me and, and go through my pockets and, and force me against my will to, to show you stuff. You should have some reason. The general proposition should be, I have the right to walk down the street unbothered. And if you want to take that right away from me, you should be able to point to something you think I've done wrong, not just that you, you don't like like the look of my face. So they should have actually been able to maybe see the gun sticking out of his pocket. That would have been probable cause. Right. So if, if you see the gun sticking out of his pocket, that's probable cause. Uh, if, you know, there's been a, a report of a robbery in the area, that could be probable cause. Terry is about not having any probable cause to think a crime was committed as at all. And that's really one of the big shifts between sort of the common law understanding of law enforcement and what Terry's signing off on, because Terry is really about investigatory stops, right? It's about crime busting. It's not, I have evidence to think someone broke a law and I'm here to enforce the law. It's, I wonder if someone broke the law or is maybe about to break the law and I want to investigate that. I want to gather facts. And so Terry is really about the use of government power for fact gathering and how that intersects with the Fourth Amendment, which is, mo which is not mostly, it's, it's also about seizures. But in this context, the Fourth Amendment is mostly about kind of restricting the government's power of arrest. 
So Keith, can you talk about the, you know, Bob alluded to this, that the the consequences of creating these new kinds of rules uh, get away from maybe what the court had intended when they created the rule. Um, what have the subsequent decades looked like after Terry came down in the late 60s? How has the law evolved in that area? Well, you know, initially, Melanie, circuit courts interpreted Terry faithfully, right? When police officers did something that far exceeded the scope of a Terry stop, right? They called it an arrest and they said you had to have probable cause. And if you didn't, well, then any evidence you collect as a result of that encounter could be barred from any future court proceeding. So, you know, for example, in 1981, the Second Circuit heard this case called United States versus Ceballos. And in that case, police officers blocked a person's car and approached with guns drawn. That's far beyond the scope of Terry, and the Second Circuit agreed. Similarly, in 1974, the Ninth Circuit, in a case called United States versus Strickler, surrounded a person in a vehicle and issued orders to them at gunpoint. And the circuit courts had no problem in recognizing that the very limited intrusion that the Supreme Court authorized in Terry didn't apply to these types of scenarios. But over the years, throughout the 80s and into the 90s, the, the circuit court started to relax these rules. So for example, suddenly you had cases where officers might draw weapons or block in vehicles or even use handcuffs or involved lengthy detentions. And circuit courts started to say, well, this, this isn't quite Terry, but, but maybe Terry could still apply. And the one thing I, I want to point out is that during this time, as the circuit courts have been expanding, Terry, the Supreme Court has been remarkably consistent in discussing Terry and applying it in a way that's that's very narrow. So during this same time span, as circuit courts have been expanding the scope of Terry, what the Supreme Court's addressed is instances like asking someone to step out of a car during a valid traffic stop. There, the court said, okay, that's a lot more like Terry, right? You're asking a person simply to step out of a car during a, a normal encounter. You're not putting them in handcuffs. You're not threatening them with force. You're simply asking them to walk away from the vehicle. Another example that the Supreme Court addressed, too, is stopping two airline passengers at the airport to ask them a series of questions, right? This is much more in line with the kind of narrow intrusion that Terry authorized in 1968. The Supreme Court's hewed with that line, but circuit courts have kind of lost their way. Right. As Bob was talking earlier about the common law, right, if the common law is a house made of bricks, right, and if Terry is a house made of sticks, then what the circuit courts have done since then are houses made of straw. They're so far removed from the rock solid foundation on which the Fourth Amendment was built that they just can't stand under close scrutiny. Well, we actually have a good example of that that IJ is involved in right now and actually bringing to the Supreme Court. Can you talk about um, one of those House of Straw uh, circumstances that that you personally are working on uh, right now. Absolutely. So uh, the Institute for Justice is is bringing a lawsuit on uh, behalf of Hayden Polrice and Weston Young Polrice. These are two boys. Uh, they certainly were uh, in 2018 when the events took place. So I want to take the, the viewers back in time a couple of years to, to January 8th, 2018. 
Hayden and Weston Young were visiting their grandparents' house to watch the college football national championship game. For those with photographic memories, that's when Alabama took on Georgia and won in a thrilling overtime game. And who knows, maybe we'll see a repeat of that again in just a couple of days. But Keith, you're on the wrong podcast for this. <laughs> unfortunately. None of, these people, none of our listeners know football. I'm get, No, I'm just <laughs> Well, you never know. So uh, at halftime of the game, though, uh, the, the family decided it was time to go home, right? So um, the boys, though, because uh, they all lived so close to grandma and grandpa's house, they decided they wanted to walk home instead of hop in the car and drive home with mom and dad. And so the parents let them walk home. But unbeknownst to the Polrice family that evening, Springdale police were engaged in a search. Now, the reasons for this search are neither here nor there, but they were looking for four individuals who had recently fled a traffic stop on foot. A woman for whom they had a, an outstanding arrest warrant, a man that, that she was with, a known Hispanic gang member who had last been known to be armed, and then two unidentified males, one taller and larger than the other. So Springdale police are searching for these four individuals and enter Officer Lamont Marzolf. He's a, an officer of the Springdale Police Department. And by the way, all of the events I'm about to describe this evening from this point on were captured on the officer's dash cam footage. So we have video footage of everything we're about to talk about. So Officer Marzolf is responding to this call to set up a search perimeter to look for these four individuals. And as he's driving through the neighborhood streets in Springdale, Arkansas, he comes across Hayden and Weston Young. Now, yes, one of them is taller and larger than the other, but they're not running, they're walking. In fact, in the video, they're walking slowly and calmly toward the police car with its blue lights prominently flashing. Hardly the type of conduct that you would expect wanted fugitives to display in police presence. But he nonetheless decides to pull over, step out of his car, and yell out to them, Hey, what are you doing? So one of the boys points behind him to the house that they're walking to, literally just a couple of houses behind the officer. But the officer panics and yells, Turn away from me, and pulls out his firearm and begins to advance on them. Hey, what are you guys doing? So at this point, Officer Marzolf asks their name. That's a, a rational thing to do, at least. Who are you? And the boys respond calmly. Hi, I'm Hayden and Weston Young. We're, we're just trying to walk home. But he keeps his gun out. He keeps it pointed at the boys' backs. At this point, their mother gets involved, right? The mother who's just down the street, she comes out and says, hey, what's going on here? These are my boys. Like, please let them go. But the officer ignores her and in fact only simply confirms over his radio that, hey, I have two boys here, one's taller than the other, and the officer on the other end of the line says, yeah, great, arrest those. Just hold on to them for a moment. So the officer asks them to get down on their stomach and continues to advance on them, gun drawn, while the mother comes in and tries to say, hey, officer, hold on a second. These are just a couple of teenage boys. Why are you doing this? And the officer, instead of you know, calmly stepping back from the situation and maybe recognizing that, hey, this could be a, a, an instance of uh, wrong identity, he instead stands between the mother and her boys and points a taser at her and a gun at the boys, 
all trying to almost escalate the situation uh, as, as he's trying to deal with this. What happened? Hey, sit back. My voice. Get back. Are you serious? I am serious. Get back. It's okay, boys. Um, the mother eventually retreats, and the officer uh, continues to, to move toward the boys, hold them at gunpoint. And throughout the rest of this encounter, there are a, a number of instances in which the officer had every reason to know that, hey, maybe something isn't quite right here. So we see on the video as he's standing over the boys, again, gun continually pointed at their backs. He gets word through the radio that the suspects that he's searching for, they're Hispanic. He should be able to look on the ground and see that he has two white teenagers, but he still nonetheless keeps his gun drawn. He calls in backup, right? So backup comes at this point, and he still, they both have guns now, drawn and pointed at the boys' backs. One of the boys tries to adjust his shirt, probably because it's cold, and the officers yell and again continue to gesture with their guns to stay still and not move. Officers at this point are radioed that the two males have been found. Remember, the officers are looking for four individuals. Well, the two unidentified males, they've been found, meaning that the only people left should be the man and the woman. But guess what? Officers instead at this point decide to put the boys in handcuffs and search the boys for a weapon. Finally, after all of this has happened, a sergeant shows up, asks the boys a few questions, confirms their stories, turns to Officer Marzolf and says, hey, so these guys probably aren't them. And the officer goes, oh yeah, probably not. What's your name? Aiden Young. Aiden? William. William Young, what's your name, young man? Uh, Samuel. Samuel what? Can I get a flashlight? Oh, yeah. Can I take my video? My phone is in there. Okay. What? Thanks, man. I'm sorry, young man, what? Uh, no, no, no. I'm just making sure you don't have any guns and knives on you, okay? Were they running? No, they were just walking, sir. Okay, so these probably these guys probably aren't there? Probably not. Okay. I mean, we had both parents come out, but... And only then did they uncuff the boys and let them go. From beginning to end, the boys spent seven minutes either at gunpoint or in handcuffs or being subjected to a search. Now, Melanie, does that sound anything like a Terry stop to you? It, it, that's a that's a pretty a pretty outrageous scenario, and I think it's an interesting one. You know, when we set up the conversation, one of the, the points was just the the increase in interaction between uh, police and the public, and and just the potential. As you're talking, you know, my face is like ah, as a parent. You know, the potential for a, a really horrible outcome just seems. That 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 you know that seven minutes of terror on the part I'm sure of of everybody involved. Um, Bob, can you talk a little bit about this? Is an, an interesting case in a couple of reasons. One, just the the facts of it are, are so shocking as Keith described, but also it's procedurally gotten really complicated, which is an uh, interesting in its own way because the 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 courts and looking at these cases. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've established all these rules to try to make things easy and clear for police officers and easy and clear for the courts, but it doesn't seem like that is really how it usually turns out. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I, I think this case is a great example of kind of the, the absurd lengths to which civil rights litigation in this country ha have gone, because the story Keith just told you is outrageous, but it's relatively simple, right? Like the whole thing happens in less than 10 minutes. Uh, it's an officer who has a, a pretty thin reed to stop these children, and that reed gets steadily thinner. And, you know, he, he points his gun at them the whole time. He points his taser at an innocent woman who's just trying to explain herself relatively straightforward, right? Like, you should be able to tell that story to a jury. The jury goes out in the afternoon, comes back at, at five o'clock, and you've got your verdict on, on whether that was reasonable or not. And what happened in the case is Cassie Polrice brought a lawsuit on behalf of herself, who was, you know, at, held at taser point, and her two minor children who were held at gunpoint. Uh, and the, the district court looked at the case and said, well, Pointing your gun at children is is probably a bridge too far. Like there were several moments when you should have known that these children were not the adult men you were looking for. And I mean, one of the children's voices had not broken. This, this was not a an, a simple case of mistaken identity. Uh, so there there's no qualified immunity for that. I think that part of the case should probably go to trial. Um, but the the. As for the mom, as for Cassie, uh, there's a case on point uh, that says it's unconstitutional for the police to point a gun at you for no reason, but there's no case that says they can't point a taser at you for no reason. Uh, and people who have listened to this podcast before will have heard of the doctrine of qualified immunity, which says that government officials can only be held liable for violating the Constitution if they violate a clearly established right, uh, a right that a previous case has precisely said exists. And so the district court sort of splits up the case. He says, look, you can't go forward on the taser claim. They should get qualified immunity on that. You can go forward to trial on the, the claim about holding children at gunpoint. That seems bad enough that I'll let that go to trial. Uh, but one of the other things government officials get in qualified immunity are special rights of appeal. And so as soon as a court says you don't get qualified immunity, you get an automatic right to go to an appellate court and ask whether that's correct. In ordinary litigation, you have to finish a case before a case goes up to the appeals court because we want to avoid litigating cases piecemeal. We want everything orderly, fixed up in a box so the appellate court can open up that box and tell us if anything was done wrong. Qualified immunity upends that system. So the officer who is denied qualified immunity for pointing his gun at two children gets to immediately appeal that. But Cassie is a normal person. She, she's a private citizen who says her constitutional rights were violated. She doesn't have special appeal rights. So she lost the qualified immunity motion and she has to wait to the end of the case. Uh, to, to appeal that. And so while the claim about her children goes up on appeal, uh, Cassie's case stays in the district court. And so there's an appeal about the, the handgun. There's an appeal about holding the boys at gunpoint, handcuffing them and all of that, while Cassie's case remains below. But when the boys' case gets up to the Eighth Circuit, the Eighth Circuit uh, rules for the officer. And the Eighth Circuit doesn't say this isn't clearly established. There's no case on point about whether you can point the muzzle of your gun at children for seven minutes. Uh, it says this just doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment. This, this was fine uh, because this was never an arrest. The part when they were held at gunpoint, not an arrest. The part when they were handcuffed, not an arrest. The part when they were frisked, none of this was an arrest. This was all just a Terry stop a minimally intrusive stop, investigatory stop based on a reasonable articulable suspicion. And so the boys lose. This doesn't violate the Constitution at all. But now the case is completely split in half. 
uh, because the boys' claim is now over. The Eighth Circuit has said they don't have a claim. And so a year after Cassie loses on her claim, she now gets the right to appeal for the first time her taser claim that can now go up to the Eighth Circuit. Uh, and so Cassie's case, even though it arises out of the same events, it was filed in the same case at the same time, is running on a completely parallel track uh, about a year after behind the, the case of her children. And so qualified immunity is this doctrine that is supposed to protect officers from protracted litigation and the burdens of litigation. And Lamont Marzoff, who, who was in the wrong, uh, clearly, in all of this, is now being protected by qualified immunity to the tune of being a defendant in two different cases uh, that are going to last at least a year longer than they should have, uh, all because qualified immunity chops these things up and, and requires us to, to approach them in a way that, frankly, in any other kind of litigation, I think we would all recognize is insane. Uh, so Keith's 10-minute story is now a years-long multi-court saga in the federal courts that, that, frankly, shows no sign of ending anytime soon. Well, and because this is is so complicated, I want to take just a minute and go back and and because you introduced in in starting to tell the story, you you introduced the term qualified immunity and then kind of brought the Terry stop back in later. But for people who aren't as familiar with with qualified immunity, can you can you kind of spell out um, the way that those two things fit together? Because we started the conversation by talking about Terry stops and then and then you know whether or not what the officer was doing was um, constitutional in you know under all this case law. And then the qualified immunity comes in. And so just for people for whom that isn't clear, can you can just quick spell it out? Yeah, absolutely. So when normal people talk about the Constitution, they generally talk about their, the scope of their constitutional rights, right? If we talk about the Fourth Amendment, we say the Fourth Amendment protects my right to walk down the street without being held at gunpoint, or the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect my right not to be frisked if I meet these conditions. This is what the Fourth Amendment means. That's not how constitutional litigation usually goes. Uh, when someone sues a government official for violating the Constitution, the court's first question is not, did the government official violate the Constitution? It's, did the government official violate a clearly established constitutional right? And a clearly established constitutional right means that a, a different court, an appellate court, has already held that exactly the same behavior in exactly the same circumstances violates the Constitution. And if the right that was violated isn't clearly established, the government official is entitled to qualified immunity. They're entitled to walk. They get out of the lawsuit because exactly this has not happened before, which is a perverse doctrine, right? It, it incentivizes violating people's rights in more and more creative ways. The trial court said that if the officer had held Cassie at gunpoint, it would have violated her clearly established rights. But since he held her only at taser point, uh, it's not even going to inquire into whether that violates the Fourth Amendment. And so it, it kneecaps a lot of constitutional analysis before we even get to the question of what the Fourth Amendment means. And it results in these sort of protracted, repeated appeals where these 10-minute interactions turn into multi-year, multi-case battles that are being fought on, on multiple fronts by huge teams of attorneys, uh, all to decide whether what happened in these 10 minutes did or did not violate the Constitution, or sometimes to decide whether a court will even look to see whether what happened in these 10 minutes violated the Constitution. So this is all getting completely messed up at the lower court level. While that's all happening over the, the span of, of multiple years, the Supreme Court issues another ruling that has to do with Terry stops. Can you talk about what, what you know, you had made the point earlier that the Supreme Court is, is much 
more closely following its original, um, pre- you know, doctrine there. Uh, can you talk about how that has played out just even even as this case was going on in the lower courts? Sure. So even as this case is pending, the Supreme Court is continuing to walk down uh, a path that it's increasingly followed in different areas of the Fourth Amendment uh, over the course of the past couple of decades, which is really grounding the Fourth Amendment in the, the understanding of what kind of privacy rights we had, what rights we had against search and seizure at common law. Um, and one question that comes up at uh, in, in the Fourth Amendment is what constitutes an arrest for purposes of, say, an excessive force claim. And the court has looked to common law definitions of what constitutes an arrest. And arrest at common law was uh, a very simple concept. An arrest was, as, as one commentator put it, uh, the beginning of one's imprisonment. Uh, the arrest is the moment at which you have been seized. It's the moment at which you cannot walk away. Uh, and the government, a government official could effect an arrest by simply touching someone. Uh, uh, debt collectors, people arresting those who were scofflaws who had not paid their debts, could affect an arrest literally by touching someone with a stick. Uh, once physical contact had, made, had been made, that person was arrested. And so that is the scope of arrest that would have been understood by the framers of the Fourth Amendment. And that's the beginning of our analysis. That's the beginning of how we talk about the Fourth Amendment in, in the context of arrests, in the context of searches of property, uh, in, in the context of even more esoteric things like uh, the government use of technology to search us all in the Supreme Court's modern doctrine begins by trying to ask, what's the scope of the right at common law? Which is in stark contrast with Terry, where I think the Terry opinion makes some some nods at the common law, but I think that the best reading of what the court was doing with Terry in the 60s was just trying to come up with a rule that made sense to them. Uh, Not grounding it in the common law, just trying to be fair, trying to pick a good, reasonable middle ground. And it's starkly at odds with essentially every other mode, every other area of Fourth Amendment analysis. When you look at the the mode of analysis the court uses to figure out where we start, Uh, where we start if the government's searching your home, where we start if the government is throwing you in a jail cell is the common law. Where we start when the government wants to stop you from freely walking down the street is uh, sort of what, what seems reasonable, what, what seems okay in the moment. And it is, it's a stark difference, and it makes a real difference in outcomes, as, as I think you see in the Paul Reese case. With all that background, um, and given the, the complexity of the case, um, Keith, can you, if, if IJ, you know, takes this up to the Supreme Court, if we prevail, um, let's let's focus, I guess, at this point, just on the the piece that that we are petitioning to the Supreme Court right now. Um, what if if we prevail on all of the things that we care about? What does the law look like after that case comes down? Gosh, I mean, it could look uh, a number of different ways, depending on really how uh, how much the court wants to hew in line with the common law that Bob just talked about. You know, because. Because the courts moved towards this much more common law centric view of the Fourth Amendment over the last several decades, led in large part by the late Justice Scalia, you you have a a kind of a, a decision point for the court if they take this type of a case. The first is to say, hey, maybe Terry was a mistake in the first place. 
Maybe the common law says that the Terry exception, even though it was a compromise made in good faith by the court in 1968, it doesn't have any roots in the Constitution, and so we should just scrap it entirely. The other way of thinking about what the court might do in this type of a case is to say, well, the common law foundations of Terry are iffy. We don't maybe feel comfortable overruling it in its entirety, but we certainly shouldn't extend it. And the courts below, what they've done over the last several decades in slowly eroding what was formerly a narrow and limited intrusion, that's no dice. You can't do that anymore. You should make sure that the exception that we carved out in 1968 remains as narrow and limited as possible. And if we win on either ground, whether we scrap Terry entirely or make it the narrow and limited exception that it was intended to be, I think we're going to see a remarkably different kind of encounter between police and everyday citizenry because there's no longer going to be a license to simply stop and put someone in handcuffs or hold them at gunpoint or throw them in the back of a police cruiser all in the name of conducting a quote-unquote stop and frisk. We're going to actually obey what the Fourth Amendment says. And that's, I think, a remarkable step in the right direction. I am a, a friendly interviewer, but I, I want to put a couple of uh, questions to you. So obviously, you know, IJ has a particular perspective on this, but, you know, the law evolved the way that it did because a lot of people don't, they didn't agree. There was a, a concern maybe about public health and safety, um, crime prevention, whatever it might be that, that was sort of driving the lower courts to to rule the way that they, they do. Obviously, a lot of people have those those kinds of concerns. So um, if if the law goes the way that 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 you ad are advocating, that IJ is advocating in this in this case, what does that mean for public health and safety, and 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 what kinds of limits, it, you know, practical limits, does it put on the the police and their ability to prevent crime? I think that that's something that people are are, you know, concerned about always, and um, you know, it's true now, just as it may have been in the '60s. So I think a lot of what what we're, what we would see in a more common law centric approach to the Fourth Amendment uh, has very little to do with actual public health and safety. And what what a lot of people where a lot of people start when they think about the common law in this area uh, is with what were called the Nightwalker statutes, which I, I always like bringing up the Nightwalker statutes because it feels like they were fighting vampires. Uh, but in fact, Nightwalker statutes were uh, statutes dating back to, to England as as early as the 14th century uh, that made it illegal to essentially walk around at night with no purpose. They were sort of proto-loitering laws uh, that allowed constables to stop people who were walking around at night and, and demand that they give a good account of themselves. Um, and I think that much kind of maps on to what you can reasonably expect law enforcement to do today. And I think it, it maps on to, to what happened to the boys that and the story Keith just told us, fairly well. An officer is driving down the street. He knows that people just fled a traffic stop. Uh, and he, so he sees two people who meet his super vague description, and he says, hey, stop it. Tell me who you are. But the, the big twist, I think, is that then they tell him who they are. 
they point to their house that they're walking to, and he has no further reason to believe they're up to no good, uh, does he have the discretion to then escalate the situation in the absence of any probable cause to, to believe that anything is wrong? Can he continue the interaction? Can he put them in handcuffs? Can he search them just in the name of investigation because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time? And I think the common law would tell us no. Uh, and, you know, I, I always, there's a famous Scalia opinion where he questions whether the, the fiercely proud men who framed our Constitution would have been willing to subject themselves to just being stopped on the street and searched by strangers. And it's a question that answers itself. I don't think any of us want to be stopped for no reason and, you know, thrown on the ground and held at gunpoint uh, when we've been perfectly cooperative. And so it, the Fourth Amendment is not a rule that says the police cannot interact with the citizenry. The Fourth Amendment is a rule that says if the police are going to effect an arrest, if they're going to slap the cuffs on someone, if they're going to hold you at gunpoint, they have to actually have a reason. And if you have a, if you actually have a perfectly good explanation for who you are and where you're going, that ends the interaction. Uh, and really what has happened in the lower courts, as Keith has alluded to, is that once you reach that Terry bar, once you say, I have an articulable suspicion about this person, I'm not doing it totally randomly, I have an inkling, that kind of stops the analysis and it opens the door to a, a range of, of interactions and abuses that are, are based on nothing and that are frankly not healthy for the citizens' trust in their own government. A response to that could be, well, it seems, I, I mean, when you describe it now, I mean, it all seems so obvious, but in the moment, you know, it's night, the the police officer, you know, maybe kind of tense and nervous, you know, should we be comfortable with the idea that judges are in the position of second guessing the split second decision making of police in these circumstances? So I think there are a couple of responses to that. Uh, one is that I'm, I'm not sure what we're saying is judges need to be second-guessing the, the decisions in these circumstances. Uh, the, the way things usually happen, if someone says, uh, if, if there's a car accident and someone says, I behaved unreasonably, is that a, a jury of our peers decided whether I behaved okay. We send it to 12 ordinary citizens, and they, as members of the community, decide whether this is something the community is going to accept as reasonable. That's historic historically, how a lot of these disputes were, were resolved. And a lot of what's happened in modern Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is judges affirmatively taking that decision away from the jury. No, no one in the Polaris case has ever said that, uh, that the plaintiffs are entitled to recover. The, the only thing they've ever gotten was a trial court decision that said this case could go to a jury. A jury could decide whether this was okay. And judges have instead said that, no, a, a jury can't hear this. We cannot allow a jury to hear this story, hear these facts, and decide whether it was reasonable and acceptable or not. So I, I don't know that judges sitting in their chambers alone are the best people to decide whether a particular interaction was reasonable or not. But the... The situation we have now is that judges are the ones making that determination, and they're the ones who are uniformly saying that, that this was okay. Well, thank you both. You, you've convinced me, and I'm sure convinced our listeners as well. Uh, thank you both for joining me today and to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can find more like it wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. IDU's work is made possible by people across the country who provide the financial support to do what we do. I hope you will consider joining them. 
With this episode, our show will be taking a hiatus, but the work of the Institute for Justice goes on. To learn more about cases and issues that affect the constitutional rights of people like you or to make a donation, visit us online at ij.org.